I'm gonna ask you some questions. How many are there? One guy inside the front door, second guy on the top floor. After the tone, please leave a message. It's done. The man called, and he wants to see you right away. State Senator Albert Vato. His teenage daughter's missing. What's the lead? He got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. They said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 248, You Were Never Really Here. And this is listener request number 20, courtesy of Lewis. I do enjoy the uh, listeners just dialing in on what we love, dark, brutal, (laughs) unrelenting. Very grim selection, although it was a movie that we both enjoyed a lot we saw it in the theater yeah really intense viewing i would say yeah. i mean this movie is in your face this is our first ever international listener request i believe we've gone pretty global. sure yes <laughs> getting requests now from the uk it looks like so that's pretty cool absolutely we finally made it we're hitting the big time before we jump into you were never really here let's remind everyone to Follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. That is a perfect place to reach us if you have a listener request like Lewis and have a certain movie you'd like us to tackle. Lewis just went for the one, and he got lucky. 
that it was a movie that I agreed to immediately. Okay. I do think it's better that if you bring a request, maybe try to bring a few. Do I have to put like multiple stamps on a, an international sticker envelope? <laughs> How does that work? I don't know. He didn't ask for a sticker. Well, he's getting one anyway. Louis, <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like a sticker, let us know. Not interested. <laughs> no thanks, he says. They've got that good physical media over there in the UK, you know? All those good releases. Region whatever. Region B. Yeah. Blu-rays. They got the good stuff. Yeah, although I do think that their Criterion collection isn't as good as ours. But the, so a lot of those that. releases are on different labels, well, probably. Criterion's on the way down. <laughs> Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever. If you are subscribed, you'll never miss anything that pops up like a random, give us a second, talking about Seinfeld, which we will do more of at some point, If in case you enjoyed that. <laughs> a lot of people finally sold on the idea of subscribing now. Yes. <laughs> Plus, you never know when we're going to release these episodes. We try to keep it fairly consistent, but... It always seems like there's a reason to cram more episodes yeah. in that I'm demanding Matt come over to record more I think, frequently. Um, the evidence is finally, it's apparent if we don't stick on a scheduled release, it really hurts the download numbers. I do think there is an impact, but I'm always coming up with reasons why we need to record more. I feel like if we get <laughs> off schedule, you get like a sense of anxiety that we need to then make up for it with extra episodes. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Even though it's a completely free podcast, I always feel yep. indebted to the listeners. Well, <laughs> I'm sure there's people out there that would say more is not always better. <laughs> That's true. That's true, especially yeah, yeah. when it comes to this show. Finally, you can follow us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Z-A-C-H-1983. Mm, yeah. Matt Crosby, M-A-T-T-C-R-O-S-B-Y. I was trying to see if I could get to like roughly 365 just to see if I could get close to a movie a day average. I don't think I'm going to make it for the end of the year. Pretty weak. Yeah. For someone who calls himself <laughs> a movie fan. Yeah. Okay. It's tough. <laughs> Life is demanding. Yeah. Well, that's what the weekends are for. <laughs> make up for it. Yeah. yeah. Five, six a day. That's right. On Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> Okay, so this one, much like a lot of smaller films, we were a little bit behind the eight ball in the U.S. This is a 2017 film that we were not able to watch until probably halfway through 2018. Yeah. That's something I'm going to circle back to in a minute, but I do feel like the release for this movie was a blunder. I feel like they botched the release of this thing because uh, I remember hearing about it from the 2017 Cannes Film Festival, and that was over a year before I it was released here. hearing about it from you and only you. I, I don't think I ever saw a trailer for this. Yeah, there, we weren't inundated with trailers, that's for sure. This I, had a I, lot of buzz at the Cannes 2017. When I went into the screening for it, I was like, I don't know what this is, but Zach is acting like it's one of the movies we need to see, so it's like, okay, it must be something yeah, that needs to be I on my radar. Yeah, don't I just have the greatest judgment you do, yeah. I always know what's going on. You have your finger on the pulse of Think what's about happening. all the cool shit you would have missed out on in the theaters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It wasn't true. for me. It's definitely happened a few times where you fired off titles as like something that we need to see. Yeah. And I'll be like, I, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> but I never regret it. It's just, you know, I don't have my ear to the street the way you do. <laughs> yeah, in other words, you just don't get on the internet, really. 
Less, less than you, I'd say. You were never really here, which is also known as A Beautiful Day in some countries. Yeah. Was written and directed by Lynn Ramsey based on the 2013 novella of the same name by Jonathan Ames. I know, and I, I didn't know that going into it. If I did, I think I would have pictured something completely different because I was pretty much only familiar with Jonathan Ames' work through the HBO series Bored to Death, which is slightly different tonally than this. Yes. <laughs> it's basically a comedy. The box office was $10.9 million, which I find surprising, although I'm sure it did well in other countries. Yeah. I don't know what the budget was that wasn't readily available. Not a packed theater when we went to see it, that's for no. sure. As I said, it premiered at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival as a work in progress, which I think is weird and something I really had never considered, but I guess they do sometimes screen unfinished films, and Ramsey did confirm that it was not finished, the final cut, although that did not seemed to deter the festival goers because the film was met with a lot of buzz. It got like a seven-minute standing ovation, and it won Best Screenplay, and Joaquin Phoenix won Best Actor. But when it came time to find a U.S. distributor, things got a little muddy. At one point, it was reported that A24 had acquired the rights to the film. That turned out to not be the case, and it ended up being Amazon. And although Amazon has an endless amount of money and could do whatever they wanted and probably buy other studios with maybe the exception of Disney, they always fuck this shit up. Their (laughs) releases that they put into theaters are never done right. There's no buzz for it. You never know what's going on. As you said, you never even heard of it. You're right. Anything that's Amazon original doesn't seem to get a big push. I know. Even the Nicholas Winding Refn series. <laughs> they I, just buried that. I mean, it just felt like it just came and went like no it's build. Because, it's probably because Amazon is too big yeah. and has too much money. And so they can just be like, they can write it off. They Who can just gives be like, a shit? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't care about that. But this should have been positioned during Oscar season. And it's possible that under the right circumstances, I, I didn't really pull up who won what that year, but... Joaquin Phoenix could have won his Oscar earlier than Joker. Yeah. yeah. Lynn I mean, Ramsey could have could at have least been, been nominated. For, yeah, director. Th- this was definitely one of the best directed movies of that year. Instead, it, it ended up coming out in the U.S. in the middle of the summer and was here and gone, and no one even talked about it by the time award season came around. Like I said, I think it came out in 2017 in Europe and other places. Yeah. If I had had any knowledge of the movie leading up to it, I would have been like, oh, this is a cool project, like you said, based on Jonathan Ames' source material. I think Johnny Greenwood did the music, who's done a bunch of Paul Thomas Anderson scores. Anytime Joaquin Phoenix is in the mix, always fun. I think the Casey Affleck documentary is called, like, I'm Not Here or something. Right, Which is kind of just a funny coincidental title tie-in. It does have an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, so critics did love it. I do think that, much like a lot of the films we've discussed over the last few months, there was some divisive audience reactions. doesn't take much effort to find people complaining about the film online if you want to. There's a lot of people that didn't like it. Wow. I do think that among cinephiles, film snobs, the community we are involved with yeah i do think most people liked it but the general public no this is not for them we almost say this too often but this is not something for the mainstream 
It is so in your face. It's it's violent. The material is dark. Well, the violence that they show, though, is not the violence you would expect, which is I think is also part of it. It's much more of a contemplative movie than the marketing would have you believe, yeah. where they have Joaquin Phoenix holding a hammer on the poster, and it says Taxi Driver for a New Century. And yes, there are a lot of similarities with Taxi Driver, and we can talk about those, but it's setting up expectations for something that this is not. The style of this movie, the presentation of it, is not your typical action, revenge, save the girl type movie, even if that's what the story is. The presentation is way different. And I do think that some of the... It has like an artistic feel to it. The internal ideas going on with the lead character, Joe, I think lend themselves to a much darker version of this story than you would even expect on the surface. Yeah. I'd say the score plays a pretty big part in it. At Sometimes it's very like loud and oppressive. At other times it's playing old songs from like the 60s or 50s. Yeah. I see a lot of similarities with Taxi Driver, although I do think that the story is much different in the end. I think the character of Joe is certainly a lot different than Travis Bickle. I think Joe is much more of a relatable guy yeah. because of his past trauma that has like led him down this path. Travis's yeah situation is harder to empathize with because it seems like he's mostly in the wrong. He has a childlike sense of reality it's almost like he's just lost travis bickle he just feels like he doesn't know how to interact you get like a little bit of an incel vibe yeah from travis bickle (laughs) right joe more so just seems like a lot of bad shit has happened to him and he just seems like he's never gonna recover from this he's a shell of a man that's right i think when joker came out people were comparing the two films because of certain aesthetic choices There's the taking care of the mother thing, plus Joaquin Phoenix. It's a character study. It's all about him. A skinnier version of Joaquin Phoenix and Joker, certainly. But I think the similarities are very surface level. I think the stories are very different. If anything, you would maybe want to compare Joker more to Taxi Driver in terms of the actual final feeling of the movie. I I would agree with that, yeah. There's also a little bit of true detective. Well, definitely like that story that it is. is. Yeah, the the conspiracy, the weird. The sex trafficking stuff. Right, and like uh, political factions being involved. That's another element of the story that we can explore later as it comes up. I think there's some debate on how we're supposed to perceive the sex trafficking ring. Is it all real? Is it not real? What's the story here? Who knows? How does Nina's father... Yeah. play into it. I do think that there's some deeper stuff in this movie and things that you can analyze and discuss, but I like taking most of it at face value. I mean, it, like I said, it's a very in-your-face movie. I don't think she's pulling a lot of punches, Lynn Ramsey. Right, but even if you take it all at face value, there's still a lot of unknown. Absolutely, it. yeah. It's lean and mean. There's zero fat. It's unflinching, brutal. There's a searing intensity to it. And there is no two-hour and 20-minute version of this movie. No. The studio did not hack this down. This was a stylistic choice to keep this as bare-bones as possible, to keep the viewer in the dark about certain things, to keep you guessing about certain things. This 
three minute or however long it is yeah. version of the movie is exactly what Lynn Ramsey was intending to I make. I think it's tough to keep a sustained, intense feeling for two plus hours. When you're watching one of those movies that's really kind of like keeping you on edge, I just think that's tough once you reach a certain point in the runtime. This movie, it's effective. I, I think it, the tightness helps that. Yeah, when you're burning that bright with intensity, it can be hard to maintain it any longer than it needs to be. And this keeps it at the bare minimum. There's absolutely no frills. The whole movie's punctuated by no-nonsense smash cuts. It leaves you hanging in certain moments. You're not entirely sure. And in many ways, I do think You Were Never Really Here is a revisionist action film. That's a phrase I've never really heard before, but I figured it made sense. Okay. When you think about how much we talked about revisionist westerns with McCabe and Mrs. Miller and how it deconstructs the tropes and concepts of a traditional western film, You Were Never Really Here presents a typical action story breaks it down and presents it in a completely different way. There's no glorification of this stuff. There's no reveling in the violence. Right. We'll talk about the violence later, but a lot of the violence that you would maybe think would be cathartic is off screen or done in a way where you don't get to see it, but the violence you do see is all self-inflicted. Yes. Joe on himself. Right. You do get to see him use his weapon of choice a couple times. Yeah, but you don't really, though. Yeah. Okay. You don't actually see it. The main sequence is done through, like, a security camera. Yes. Okay. There's always, like, an, a way to obscure it so that you don't get to, like... True. Okay. Yep. ...roll around in it and take pleasure from it. <laughs> I don't think I could take pleasure in it, though. It's pretty rough. I don't know. I think it appeals to that instinctual side of you though well there's a couple guys you'd like to see get it yeah it's setting up a scenario where you're like how the fuck does this happen how could we let this happen these innocent girls their children they're taken into this horrible thing this horrible life these people are monsters yeah and so you want that satisfaction and the movie deprives you of it but i'd be fine with the satisfaction i I don't know i can handle like a gunshot or something someone like brutally beaten with a hammer i think would be tough for me yeah you never really get to see too much with the hammer it's all implied and the climactic sequence you don't see anything the people are already yes down by the time you see them some people have referred to this as an art house version of taken i don't think that that's too off the mark it's very art housey i think the goals are very different from a film like that yeah sidebar (laughs) I watched Pig, the Nicolas Cage movie, but I saw some people on Letterboxd making jokes about that because that also, like, people were tying that into Taken because his pig is Taken. Yeah. And somebody was calling it, like, Bacon instead of Taken. (laughs) It's making me laugh. You Were Never Really Here is meditative, contemplative. Joaquin Phoenix is a tour de force as Joe. It's a grim character study, a portrait of a man birthed by violence. Haunted by trauma, living with PTSD, an extreme version. All thanks to an abusive father, the military, his time in the FBI, lots of fucked up shit. It subverts genre expectations by subtracting the romanticism. The violence is never cathartic. In fact, we're denied the opportunity to revel in it because the violence 
most clearly depicted is the violence that Joe inflicts on himself, as I mentioned. The brutal killings of the bad men are either off-screen or somehow obscured in some way. Violence is a cycle, and it's clearly destroying Joe from the inside like a cancer. He's definitely on a, a downward slide. Things are spiraling out of control for him. It feels like it's getting tougher for him to have a grip on reality. Yes. Like all these problems are just keep breaking into his life. And the way that Ramsey chooses to depict this is to give us these fragmented flashbacks, which is supposed to represent Joe's fragmented mind. He can't see things clearly anymore, and the past is haunting him so much that it jumps up and bites him oh, yeah. from time to it's time. It's not just like peeking its little head in. I mean, it is forcing its way in. Yeah, it's a lot of unresolved issues, a lot of things that weren't properly dealt with that are continuing to fester, and he's seen some fucked up shit. He experienced fucked up shit firsthand from his father, which we see a lot of, but there's also the incident when he's in the military, and there's also the incident when he's in the FBI, when we'll talk about those flashbacks more when they become clearer later in the movie. Sort of a rough life for Joe. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking a little bit of what we talked about a million years ago when we did our three-part True Detective episode. Oh, the psychosphere. And how you sometimes need bad men to keep the worst men at the door. That's right. And how we felt that that was one of the issues, one of the themes of True Detective was these are not perfect men, these are flawed men but they're the ones that we have to entrust to keep the monsters at bay. Right. I mean, And I don't think that Joe is bad, necessarily. He's always on the side of good. He's doing a good thing, although it is for money. But he is a contract killer, essentially, right? I mean, it's not like... I don't think he's putting a lot of thought into the jobs that he's taking, usually. No, he does one specific thing, which is... Kill people for money. No, no, no. He he brings girls back. Okay. That's what he does. That's his job. Always. It's always yeah, that? Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. I see. I thought that he was taking jobs that could vary, but they usually involve killing. No. There's okay. no indication of that. The opening is him finishing a previous case with that girl, Sandy, that he had to find. All right. He's finding abducted girls, and the implication is that they're usually sold into like sex trafficking rings. Yes. I think if you were to explore that territory, not to get too dark but i would imagine that a lot of the girls are dead i would think yes contracted for and there's nothing there but in this very heightened reality of this movie Mm -hmm. it seems that anytime a a teenage girl a young teen disappears that they're immediately in a sex trafficking ring so rawls from the wire yeah i was just like a contact that people get to and it's like okay my daughter's missing we think maybe a sex ring is where she ended up And he's like, all right, I got a guy. That's the business here. Right. I guess the idea is in this world, there's a couple of different reasons that you would get go to this route. One, if there's any amount of notoriety or embarrassment that would arise and you want to keep the whole thing quiet, which is what the main story is. The Yes. The conceit of the main story, supposedly. Obviously, there's more to it once we find out the truth. But Mm -hmm. and number two would be you don't trust the police to act fast enough. There's sort right. of a hesitancy to, or lack of immediacy. Well, and you can understand. It seems like 
if there's some ring like this, there's probably great lengths being taken to make it difficult to crack into. So I'm sure the police going through all the normal channels can't get there at any level of speed. Or also they might be corrupted themselves. That's true. Taking payouts or whatever in this universe of this movie. I think we can discuss how common these things are later if we want to. I don't know that something like what's presented in this movie is necessarily happening all the time. That's true. It's almost been explored more in the past 20 years in movies and stuff than it's probably actually occurring. Obviously, we know that shit like this exists. Definitely. We know about Jeffrey Epstein and stuff like that, but it's one of those things where this movie takes it to a level that seems insane, where yeah. you're like the senator and the governor well, true and all detective people involved. Season one was that way, too, yeah. where it's like this giant thing that you're almost like, is everyone part of this world? Right, yes. The title itself is two-pronged. At the beginning of the film, we see Joe's M.O., which is after he completes a case, he takes the photograph that he uses of the girl and burns it, mm-hmm. as if signifying she was never really there. That's right. He was never really there. This never happened. Yeah. He wants to forget. He probably right. hopes she forgets. Yeah, I think some of that, him trying to bury the things from his past, different things, the thing when he was a kid, Yeah. the FBI, the, the military incident that you alluded to, I do think that there is a big part of it is him trying to bury these things, and they're always yeah. The second poking part, back the out. second prong is the existential dread of yeah. him believing he doesn't matter, that his life is pointless. That's a symptom of the PTSD. This is depicted by Ramsey by having him disappear at times or yeah. just not be there when you're expecting him. There's that scene at the train. Yeah. stop where he disappears at one point i was picking up you know this was only the second time i ever watched it because yeah you know, like we said we did see it in the theater i liked it but it is grim i mean it's hard to like feel like you want to revisit this right it's a dark movie although less intense than in the theater watching it streaming yeah you know but i did pick up on some of that stuff more often this time around him at the water fountain at the airport right he's drinking at it and there's a girl looking at him and then all of a sudden he's gone but the fountain's the water's still coming out of the spigot right. yeah you can interpret those things in a couple of different ways we'll talk about some of the the crazier or bigger interpretations maybe at the end and i'll preface that later or you could look at that as just an artistic choice to signify what the title means and what the story is about I do think that it's possible that if you push down that water fountain, it would just keep going <laughs> for a little bit. I don't yeah. know that it's necessarily like he's a ghost or something. Right. Although people do interpret this stuff in all different sorts of crazy ways. Yeah, yeah. Which is the product of making an interesting layered piece of art is that there's a lot to try to pull out of it. I think it does help to watch the film with subtitles on because then you're you're getting clarification on some of the flashbacks right it even tells you sometimes who is speaking when you don't see who's speaking that way you know for sure what they're trying to go for at least i assume that this subtitles are officially sanctioned (laughs) (laughs) we were never really here also could have been a good name for this podcast that's true especially when i delete it in a fit of rage (laughs) momentarily The title and Joe's M.O. ties in with the opening scene, but I'll read a quote here from the actual novel. I've never read the novella. I did look for it at one point after we saw this movie in the theater. 
I can't remember that I actually ever found it at Barnes and Noble, but I, I definitely remember like trying or considering ordering it or something. It just never happened. It's very short, so yeah, yeah. I, I mean, this is read it. the fact that this is Jonathan Ames. I mean, that's kind of opened my eyes a little bit because I, I loved Bored to Death the show. I thought it was funny. We have a character that starts moonlighting as a private detective, something I'm very interested in, in doing. But this has kind of opened my eyes. I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's got some, there's some darkness there too. This is something straight out of the book. Quote, he felt himself diminishing a shadow around the edges of his mind, and he heard a voice say, it's all right, you can go. You were never really here. And that ties in with the opening scene because we see him burning the picture of Sandy, the first girl. Joe is a traumatized hired gun who specializes in rescuing trafficked girls using brutal methods against their captors. Although not always, I think we find out in that conversation with Vado. He says that he can be brutal. Yeah. It does lead you down a road of thinking about, is he only doing this for the money? And that does seem possible. Yeah. But does the whole thing with Nina transform him in that sense too? Not just make him want to live life, but it seems like it does because... Yes, I would agree. That feels implied by the movie. Yeah, there's no more money coming in at a certain point, but he continues with it. He also cares for his elderly mother and his childhood home in New York City. Joe has flashbacks of the abuse he and his mother faced from his violent father and his brutal past in the military and FBI. He is haunted by suicidal thoughts. There's some really cool filming techniques in this movie, but one of the parts that I thought was awesome i didn't really remember from the first time around but when he comes back from his first gig at the beginning of the movie and he's just driving along that bridge and new york city's in the background it just looks awesome oh yeah this is an expertly crafted film i recently watched two of lynn ramsey's other films for the first time it was sort of a hole in my resume i guess as a film fan i watched we need to talk about kevin which i think came out in 2011 Stars Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley and uh, Ezra Miller. Yeah, is that the? I don't know if that's who's in it. That feels like it would be the right casting. And Ratcatcher, which I think came out in '99. Yeah, which she made in her home country of Scotland. But yeah, I, I have a whole new appreciation for Ramsey as a filmmaker now. I don't know why I didn't seek out her films earlier after seeing this one. We need to talk about Kevin. Has been on my radar for a long time, but again, it's just one of those. where the topic of it just seems so dark and just, yeah, most Friday nights, I'm like, I think this is the night that I watch. We need to talk about Kevin. Ratcatcher just came out on Criterion Blu-ray, and you can sort of cross that off because, like I said, it takes place in Scotland. But we need to talk about Kevin and You Never Really Hear are both American set. (laughs) It's always funny thinking of someone from a different country, and it's like, wow, they have a really fucked up, view of america this is how (laughs) america projects itself school shootings and sex trafficking rings (laughs) oh boy it's a really dark place but yeah i have a whole new appreciation for her i do think that for whatever reason maybe it's due to sexism in the industry or whatever it does seem to take female filmmakers longer to be given the funding or the opportunities so the gap between some of these movies, it just goes on so long. Oh, I know. And then you look at their IMDb and it's like, oh, there's not that many. And she started, her first directorial feature comes out in 99 and she's made like four films I total. Know. 
What a bummer. I mean, this is a movie that if I had any sort of financial wherewithal, I could be like, oh, I'm going to invest in movies. If I saw this, I'd be like, Lynn Ramsey, what do you want to make? Yeah, I know that we've been critical or semi-critical sometimes of A24, even though we've actually covered a couple of A24 films recently. But this is an instance where I feel like if this movie would have ended up with A24, its fate would have probably been a lot better, at least in America. Yeah. It's a shame that more hasn't come for her, more opportunities. Although, like we said, it's always going to be a problem when the thing that you make is a little bit much for 80% of people. Early on, we see evidence of Joe's fractured mind. This is presented to us through the sounds and the visuals of the film. I do think that I would recommend seeing this and experiencing it for yourself. It's a film that, let's be honest, there's not going to be a ton of clips throughout this episode. I'm sure you'll see that to be true because there's not a ton of dialogue. It's presented all focused on one character for the most part who's by himself a lot. And so you need to experience the the visual presentation. Oh, yeah. Even like the audio, again, it was just like so loud, even going with your uh, revisionist action movie. I feel like I can remember walking out and just having like that almost buzz, like when you get off a roller coaster or something, because in the theater, it was just like so loud and so intense through most yeah. of the movie. We see Joe burning the photo of Sandy cleaning the hammer, which indicates there has been violence. <laughs> Yeah. Early on, we get the first hint of his disappearing act at the water fountain, which you described. This is something that will recur throughout the beginning of the film a lot more, and sometimes throughout it. We get a look at Joe's scarred and broken body. He's got a lot of different marks all over him, and his shoulders are uneven. Yeah. He's got just a lot of of wear and tear. Slouches a little bit, which is referenced later. His mother is played by Judith Roberts, who played the pretty lady across the hall in a racer head, I oh, believe wow. is her title. That's a poll. Yeah. A <laughs> <laughs> racer head. Check it out. Also on Criterion. Yes. Although this movie is not, but Ratcatcher is. As Joe comes home one night, he is seen by Moises, the son of a man named Angel. Angel is the middleman between Joe and his handler, John McCleary. This exposure of his home location concerns Joe. In his line of work, he needs to keep distance between himself and anyone that might be looking for him. He likes to keep uh, work and life separate. Yeah, I don't think that he necessarily was a contract killer. Yeah. But it is possible he was involved in more than just extractions. It depends on what plot summary you read. Okay, yeah, that's right. (laughs) I think some are just focused solely on that because we see him burn the photo at the beginning and then he starts the cycle again. Yeah, and he seems. Like, he doesn't need much explanation. This yeah. is, like, what he's supposed to do. I, I guess I was just getting the sense that there were other jobs on the table. Not Well, no. that's what I was working to. I yeah, think yeah. that it is possible that there were other jobs on the table. I don't think he was, like, a straight-up hitman, though. Okay, right. That seems unlikely, because he doesn't even really kill the people, all the people that he could. Yeah, I think that's he does true. at a certain point, but some of them he just leaves alive. Yeah, that's right. Whatever. He's always loading up on tape so he can tape people's mouths shut. A lot of hardware store shopping for Joe. His mother seems to be his one source of joy in his life. The two of them are permanently bonded through trauma and pain. Through the flashbacks, we'll learn that Joe's father took out a lot of the abuse on Joe's mother. Yeah, mom doesn't seem to be doing too well. 
Well, she's probably better now that the father's out of the picture. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, I think she's at a point where things aren't all right with her. John McCleary is played by John Doman, who played Rawls in The Wire. Just love seeing this guy pop up. He's also in Blue Valentine. That's right. (laughs) Just an unforgettable role. He's really only in the one scene. In this, yeah. Well, I guess technically he's in another one. (laughs) No lines in that second scene. (laughs) Joe tells McCleary... They got to cut Angel out of the equation due to the potential security risk. McCleary then assigns Joe a new job. New York State Senator Albert Votto has offered a large sum of money to discreetly rescue his abducted daughter, Nina. McCleary is able to provide Joe with the address of a brothel for wealthy patrons, which yeah. was sent to Votto via anonymous text. So let's get Suspicious into that. Suspicious details. Was the text real? I don't think so. It seems that Votto just knew, right? right? Yeah, that's. I think that's what you're supposed to put together after he talks to the one guy who's crawling on his floor later. Right. Yeah. I didn't know how else to describe that guy. It's odd circumstances because it's like, okay, you want me to rescue y- your daughter? You're going through these weird back channels, but you know where she is? Yeah. The excuse is that Votto is a senator. He's going to be on the governor's ticket. come election time and he's moving upward and he wants to keep this quiet i guess it would make more sense if it was like a ransom situation hey can you go in and fuck these guys up and rescue her but it just seems weird that he would know the location yes for what the situation is yeah i guess it's not joe's job to ask questions no that's true at this point in the game i don't think he has any reason to be overly suspicious of what's happening and even if there is some reason he doesn't think it's going to involve him so he probably doesn't care because as we said and as we deduced there is a bit of a mercenary streak yeah joe's a worker bee in a way yeah he's gonna do this dirty work and in these situations he's going to fight on the side of good but it's more just that's a job right obviously that's gonna change 235 east 31st street That's what the text said. You have kids, Joe? No. Nina. Her name is Nina. I've heard of these places. (sighs) Underage girls. Senator, if she's there, I'll get her. McCleary said you were brutal. I can be. Joe goes hammer shopping, which is always fun. (laughs) Yeah. I wouldn't know. I don't spend a lot of time buying tools and things that men do. (laughs) Well... Oh, you don't go shopping for murder weapons all the time? No. Or practical hardware tools. This is where it comes in, because even when I was rewatching this, and I knew where this was headed, and I knew how Ramsey portrayed it, because I did have a lot of distinct memories of the film, you still feel that thirst for violence, because it's appealing to some primal instinct, like I was talking about before. You understand there's this vulnerable person that's being held by monsters, essentially. And now we're sending this motherfucker 
that's yeah. gonna fuck everybody's day up you know what i mean right. and you start getting into that could you imagine like if this happened to someone close to you it's like you would want to kill these people yeah that kind of a feeling my version is just like i have to go back to rawls and be like yeah i didn't have enough money to buy any weapons because i don't know if you know but kino lorber put out like a new release of the long goodbye <laughs> The Johnny Greenwood score is bumping. It's very different from his score in There Will Be Blood. And Phantom Thread. Yeah, he actually did the score in two movies that star Joaquin Phoenix, which would be The Master and Inherent Vice. That's true. It's a weird and awkward juxtaposition to have Joe, after buying all of his murder supplies, yeah, taking a picture for a group of girls on the sidewalk. <laughs> right. And that's where you realize that he can't escape his flashbacks because he starts thinking about these things that oh, he's yeah. seen. They just start popping up all over the place. They like make their way into his life. You see a little bit of a hint of the FBI flashback, which we'll talk about more later, and then the candy bar flashback, which is also extremely disturbing and troubling. As he's driving to this location and the sun is setting and it's dark and he's going through New York City, you do get a lot of taxi driver vibes, the film, I mean. You have the street walkers, the scaffolding, the oppressive sounds of the city, the construction and the traffic lights. It's all of the urgency of New York City filmed at night, condensed into this intense story. That's almost like the uncut gems vibe. Yeah, a little bit. Joe stakes out the brothel, loads up on supplies and waits. When he ends up returning, he watches. That's when we see the full FBI flashback where him and a partner discover what seems to be a shipping container of some kind or a room full of bodies. Oh, yeah. Speaking of The Wire, season two. Yeah. This has its roots in human trafficking as well, most likely, this particular flashback. He's then able to gain access to the building itself by abducting and strong-arming an errand boy named Scott. Once inside, Joe kills several security guards and patrons. This is shown on black-and-white security camera footage as Angel Baby by Rosie and the Originals plays on the soundtrack. That's right, yeah. It's so weird to have this woven into... Like we said, the score's kind of all over the place. There's like some really melodic moments there's some like intense almost like a cacophony of sound at certain points and then there's just like sound effects thrown in joe finds nita upstairs in a bedroom and he rescues her although it is heartbreaking because he leaves another girl behind yeah i know there's another girl that runs out of a room and then she's sitting at the end of that hall as he just walks out with nita and he Mm. doesn't even i guess that's the point he was there to do the job right He puts her in the car. He's going to take her to a place to wait. He has a predetermined location to meet her father. And I would say that the sequence of them driving immediately upon leaving the brothel is one of the best looking and coolest shots. Definitely. There's a song on the soundtrack playing called Nina Through the Glass because it's shot from outside of her window a lot of it. Right. And you get that hazy, blurry, neon world zooming by as they drive late at night. It looks really cool. It looks awesome there's a lot of like really great artistic shots in this it's definitely it's such a expertly crafted film and it never gets away from itself and it's as we said so tight and lean and there's no fat on it and yet at the same time 
you can crack it open and start yeah. exploring all these different little moments and it nuances is to see what it all means. I know revisiting it and even talking through it now, this is just such a great movie. Yeah, there's another heartbreaking moment when he brings her to that parking garage to wait, and it becomes clear that she is truly a lost girl at oh, this yeah. point. Because she hugs him, and you're thinking that she's grateful, but then she tries to kiss him as if Oy. that's what he's expecting from her, and he has to like stop her from doing that. Yeah, basically. that is a bummer. And you're like, okay, this is pretty fucked up. And that's your first indication that what has been going on with Nina is not something that just happened. That's right, yes. There's a lot more darkness there, although, again, this is not Joe's job to figure that out. He doesn't... I don't want to say he doesn't care. That might be too harsh, but he's not solving some big crime. He's not taking the perpetrators to prison. That's no, yeah. not what this is. In he fact, is, the hard work is pretty much done. Now it's just a handoff. He is extracting a girl from a horrible situation and bringing her home, and then that will be the end of it for him. So if... There's some other darkness going on that's... Because what I'm saying is, in case it's unclear, she gets abducted a few days earlier, gets taken to this brothel. If that's all there was to it, it's unlikely that this is how she would have reacted. This is uh, an, I'd this say so. This is an indication that this is something that's more ingrained right. in her mind. Although Joe's not really putting those pieces together yet. But Ramsey captures... The nuance and beauty in these hectic, disturbing moments. There's some really cool shots of her, like with the water dripping out of her hair once they get to the hotel room. It's a really fucking wild motel. No (laughs) one pays any attention. I think it's designed for people who are there for nefarious purposes. You think it's maybe a seedy joint, as they would say? Yeah. Yeah. The guy at the front desk doesn't even turn when he sees Joe carrying a 12 year old girl on his back. Yikes. Although I guess they probably know him at this place. You this do wonder a place that he uses. What's going on with some of the guests at a, at an establishment like this? Yeah, nothing good. No. Well, Joe and Nina wait in the predetermined hotel room for Senator Votto to arrive and reunite with his daughter. The television news reports that Votto has leapt from a building, committing suicide. Huh. At that very moment, heavily armed police officers gain access to the room with the help of the unwitting desk clerk. That's right. The two officers kill the clerk, and one nabs Nina. I guess sometimes the violence, there's a little bit of avoidance of showing it, but you do see this guy get blasted through the head. The blood splatters all over Oh, this movie's definitely violent, but it's never the violence that you want. Oh, sure. Okay, yes. We don't care about this hotel clerk we want to see the pedophiles shot through the face yeah <laughs> but it is man just a straight shot through the back of the head is this the bullet that hit joe in the face or what is going on with joe's face later that's unclear to me yeah i, I don't know he ends up pulling his own tooth I, I never really was sure what happened exactly yeah i guess it makes sense that he could be impacted by the ricochet here or whatever because i mean he is standing right in front of that guy like face to face with him basically yeah The other guy is left with Joe, presumably to kill him, but Joe strikes first, wrestling and then strangling the man. It actually is kind of shocking that Joe is able to get the upper hand here. He's just a badass. Yeah, he is. That's right. It's all that background in the military, then the FBI. There's a scene of him pulling his own tooth out of his face. and Talk about badass moves. We definitely linger on the self-inflicted pain. The self-inflicted blood, the anguish with Joe, and... That's clearly a choice. We don't see 
the hammer clearly connect with the bad guys because it's done through a grainy security footage. Yeah. He does kill the one guy in color at the very end when he sells Nina to close her eyes, but we don't really see it. That's true. There's a smash cut. Right. He tries to call McCleary, as is his normal process, to find out what the fuck is going on, but there's no answer. He keeps trying. It's not getting anywhere. Huh. He ends up taking a taxi all the way to McCleary's house. He's not there. He gets a gun. He was never really there. Joe finally finds McCleary back at the office. Yeah. Not able to speak. He's incapacitated. He's been killed. Yes. And likely tortured by the looks of it. It doesn't look good. Evidence at the scene suggests they've tracked down Angel as well as viewers. We know what this means. In one of the few moments where we leave Joe's POV, we actually see Angel and his son killed too back at their store. That's right. It's a trail of death in pursuit of Joe's address, but ultimately, after he finds McCleary, he understands where these men will be, and it's probably already too late. What led to them wanting to go through all of this to find Joe? I mean, does it really feel He's like a an loose assist- end, yeah, I, guess, I guess, on this whole yeah. thing? Yeah, it's all part of trying to to keep this thing hushed up because right. of something that's... But Joe's somebody from the underworld or whatever, too. They don't know that, though. Yeah. They don't really know. He's just some guy that got involved. He needs to be eliminated from the uh, equation, if That's possible. That's right. That's fair. The whole thing is an intense escalation. Everything's unraveling as it's becoming clearer that whatever Joe got himself involved with is bigger and more insane than he could have imagined. Yeah, it's feeling like maybe there's more to it. We learn from the flashbacks that Joe's father's weapon of choice was a hammer, which is so fucking dark. Yes. It's one thing, folks, it's one thing to beat your wife, but with a hammer. I mean, what in the <laughs> world? I don't even know that's how that's possible. Unless, that you're, go- unless like you're not w- going for the head. Yeah, it doesn't feel like this would be something that you'd be able to repeat. Obviously, she lives through it. I don't know how. It can't be any headshots. It must be like arms and shit. Yikes. Something. Yeah, it's really fucked up. How many hammer blows do you think I could survive? Zero. I'm like a waif. I would just like fall apart. I don't know. I think you got some padding. Yeah. You could absorb it. <laughs> yeah, I've got like Walking <laughs> Phoenix's body in this. In the book, they spend a lot of time explaining the rubber gloves and all of the different materials that Joe uses, and that plays into the title as well, to leave no trace, as if he is like a serial killer. And it was Joaquin Phoenix's idea that they should just keep it to the bare essentials hand hammer it makes it less realistic but it makes it more human on some level there's yeah. not some big intricate planning it's just a man with a hammer he's like batman no guns <laughs> well it's not about the guns it's more just the all the cleaning chemicals the oh, yeah. gloves right. and the you know the whole thing to make sure that there's no trace of him by the time he gets home it is of course too late when he arrives he discovers that two agents have broken into his home and have brutally murdered his mother and are waiting for him as well. Just a gut punch. She never had a chance. Yeah. They put a pillow over her face and shoot her. Later, the one agent does say that she was asleep, but you don't really know. And Joe, there's obviously such a sadness here. As soon as everything starts unraveling, you know, he's chasing the trail back and it's almost like he's just one step behind everything. Joe sneaks downstairs, kills one man, and mortally wounds the other, 
and the dying man reveals the insidious truth. So here's where you can combine your knowledge from potentially the book or also read into what's happening. I think in the film, they keep things a little more ambiguous. It's less implicit sometimes, but I think these are reasonable deductions. Vado committed suicide over his own guilt, the implication being he sold his own daughter into the underage sex trafficking ring to improve his standing with Governor Williams. Wow. Just insane. I mean, I guess you can understand why it would lead to a suicide, because how horrible of an act. Yeah. And I guess he enlists Joe because he wants to extract her over his own guilt, and he doesn't want to go to the police because of his own yes, involvement. Yes, which makes more sense than the way it's originally explained to us. Now, I feel like my memory is that I, I was interpreting it that he didn't commit suicide, that Vado was thrown from the building just because of the way this all comes crashing down. But That's what Joe thinks. Yeah. And that's what he accuses, but the guy seems to refute that. Yeah. It's never confirmed one way or the other, so you can sort of read that's into true. it. That's true, right. I think it's more fucked up if he does kill himself. Yeah. Well, especially when it's like in the midst of his daughter's in the process of being rescued. Well, you can read into that any number of ways. Maybe he realizes that they're going to blow, that he's going to be sacrificed. Yeah, and it's not going to make the governor very happy. Governor Williams is behind the big cover-up because Nina is his favorite, which implies a lot of horrible things. Yikes. He is a regular to these situations and that he has a favorite. So this is where some people get annoyed with this movie and i don't think that their issues are necessarily off base i guess it just depends on how you feel about the presentation of these sex trafficking rings because this does sometimes feel like a QAnon fantasy mm-hmm. gone wild yeah you have this right there out in the open sex trafficking pedophile ring in a brownstone in new york yes that involves a senator a governor police involvement, all of these agents all that are involved. All sorts of public officials. This will tie in with one of the interpretations of the film that we'll circle back to at the end. Although I don't necessarily agree with the interpretation, but this all plays into that. Like, this mm-hmm. is too crazy. It just doesn't make sense. It's a fantasy more than reality. Yes. I do believe, obviously, that sex trafficking rings are real and that people can right get involved in this shit. Uh, and girls are abducted and horrible stuff happens. But the percentage of highly ranking government officials being involved? Who knows? I'm sure some are and have been. I, I, definitely. I, and so, yeah. If definitely. You, it, like, I know anything. So if you take that, then yeah, you can make a fictional story about anything you want. Uh-huh. But it seems a little nuts. And I don't want the film to come off as lending credence to things like Pizzagate or any of these crazy, insane QAnon theories. or I think it's one of those things that feels weirder, just like I said earlier, because of how many times it's been depicted in film or television over the past 20 years now. Yeah. Like, if if this was the only movie that did it, you would be like, oh, wow, that's this weird one-off thing with this specific group. Right. But, that like, it's just the amount of content that's been out there that have... So what you're saying is there's too much art... Way in terms too much of art. how much reality there is yeah. on this particular subject. I think so. That's definitely possible, but people are attracted to fucked up things. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Think Yours about, truly included. Think about Fast and the Furious. <laughs> yeah. 
There's nine of them. How many times has any of that stuff ever happened? You Zero. mean you don't think like a, a car has driven between skyscrapers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Successfully. Did you see Vin Diesel posted a thing on Instagram where he was like apologizing to The Rock and like asking him to come back for Fast 10? No. <laughs> Do you think it's a work or a shoot? They worked themselves into a shoot. That's right. And yeah. now he's trying to unwork. It was like a work shoot situation. It could be. Yeah. Because it, it might build box office for the 10th one by right. being like, look at this reunion. Because <laughs> supposedly 10 is the last one. Yeah, it's never the last one. And I still haven't seen 9. 10, the final Furious. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> There's 10 more after that. When Joaquin Phoenix lays down and starts singing next to the guy as he's dying, that was apparently an, a Phoenix improv moment. Oh, wow. In a sad, touching scene... Joe gets dressed up in a suit and takes his mother's body out of the city. He takes yep. her to a lake and oh, gives yeah. her a quiet water burial. Right. He also fills his own pockets with stones and allows himself to sink into the water. What's the uh, practicality of that? Intent do, do you on think dying these, too. These uh, stones would really drag him down. Well, they're just supposed to like help pull so yeah. he doesn't float. Right. And he's not going to swim. No effort from him. I get it. This is reminiscent of a scene at the end of Ratcatcher. It's actually shot very similar with a boy underwater sinking. <laughs> not to spoil everything, but <laughs> it's not really a spoiler, but it looks very similar to this scene. Okay. But Joe has a vision of Nina. She is drowning too, and Joe understands that he is her last hope without him. That's right. She'll be gone forever. And he has a like a resurrected sense of purpose because before he really only lived, I don't know, for taking care of his mother? Right. He removes the stones from his pockets and swims back to the surface. The vision of Nina does the same. She is his salvation as he is hers, and the they are now intertwined. The thing with her counting down... I was trying to figure out, is that supposed to be something that he did as a kid? And he's like sort of... Like, she was doing it when he found her. Right, I know. But I wasn't sure if that was real or if that was him sort of well, impressing that upon her. Well, that could tie into one of the theories that yeah. she's not real. Okay. And that she is really him. Although I, I wasn't really thinking that, but it does seem... It feels weird. It feels like it's not... Yeah, I they are know. intertwined. I, yeah, I think in one of the flashbacks, he's doing the same right. sort of a thing. and Because there's no her, explanation for her doing it. There's no backstory right. to it. And that is one of the only times it leaves his perspective, is whenever she's groggy and like waking up, and it's like her perspective That's right. for yes. a minute. There's some disturbing visions, some flashbacks. I guess this is now as good a time as any. The one when he's in a military... He gives the candy bar to a girl who's then shot for the candy bar by a oh, boy. Yeah. That's right. And just laying there dead, twitching. Pretty and then messed up. When the FBI finding the bodies. When he gets out of the lake and returns to the city, he finds Governor Williams. He's played by Alessandro Nivola, who the right. Dickie yes. Maltesante himself. Also uh the guy from Jurassic Park Three. Yeah. Billy. <laughs> He's also in the Neon Demon. Yes. He's been around forever. He's married to Emily Mortimer. Oh, good for him. She makes me jealous. Right. <laughs> Joe follows Governor Williams to his country home, and Angel Baby is playing again. I wonder what it's like to write a pedophile anthem. <laughs> it's just a signifier of adults fucking children. That's great. I'm, great. Yeah. I'm glad I wrote this song. 
Well, what about that guy that had the song Young Girl, Get Out of My Mind? My Love for You is Way Out of Line. Remember that song? No. You would know it. (laughs) (laughs) Gary Puckett. Wow, that's weird. There are a lot of songs that are questionable. A lot of them are written by Ted Nugent. Yes. Joe sneaks onto the property and fights his way inside, though the actual killings are done off screen. We come across him laying next to people that he's already taken out. But he discovers Williams in a bedroom decorated for a child with his throat already slit. And this is when he finally starts to break down. He's crying. He takes his shirt off. Rips his shirt off, really. That's something that happens in movies, like the thing where people rip off the button-up shirt, you know, and the buttons go flying off. Yeah. I don't know. I just can't ever imagine doing that. (laughs) You're not strong enough. No. (laughs) It's like Hulk Hogan. The house becomes a house of visions and nightmares. He sees a lot of his haunted past throughout the house. Yeah. He's having a cathartic moment here. Joe wanders the big house and eventually discovers Nina seated at a dining room table alongside a bloody straight razor. Just enjoying a post-killing meal. Yeah, she's hungry. Yeah. She ultimately will be the one to reassure him as she tells him, it's okay, Joe. It's okay. Yeah. This has sort of morphed now into like a, the professional type relationship. Although not as problematic. No. <laughs> Yeah, less let's, problematic, let's, sure. Yeah. You know, come on. <laughs> no lines for Governor Williams. He's kept at arm's length, and yet you have no trouble understanding that he's a creep. You don't even need to know anything about him or what the story is. You get it oh, entirely. for sure. That's clear. There is a moment when Angel Baby's playing, and he's looking at those photographs of Nina when she's younger, and that's the implication it's supposed to dawn on you that this is not some recent thing. Right. Nina and him have been an item in his mind for a long time. Yikes. And it is fucking gross and horrifying. Unsettling, I'd say. And that's when you start to backtrack because there's a casual thing that McCleary had said at one point about Nina's mother committing suicide. And I think this might be clearer in the book, but maybe not. But I think that the idea is that possibly Albert Vado had his wife killed in an attempt to cover up his actions in trading Nina to Governor Williams for political advancement. What career really feels worth it? I mean, good Lord. People are fucked up, man. Yeah, seriously. Like, I can't think of a job I'd rather do less than be a politician. This guy's given up his whole family to advance in it. And there are no answers because of Williams' death. We don't get the full story, and we don't get the cathartic violence. It's off screen. I'm sure for some viewers, they found comfort in Nina doing the deed herself, and that's good, but it's off screen. You don't get to revel in that violence either. And so they leave, and they, they don't really have a destination. They stop at a diner, and when Nina goes away from the table, Joe has a violent suicidal fantasy where he shoots himself in the head yes and you see that all and there is no reaction from (laughs) the diner this part was quite memorable from the theatrical experience because it was just like good lord when he just blasts himself in the head yeah there are some moments throughout the film where he definitely toys with suicide the lake situation he also puts a bag over his head I think that that quote, seems like it's just become a hobby for him, the bag over the head thing. Well, no, the quote that I read 
from the book is from a scene in the book where he takes a bunch of pills and okay. then wraps a bag over his head and then he pulls the bag off and makes himself throw up mm. to save himself from that. Yes. So this is something that's just ongoing. But yeah, even though you have the suicide teases throughout, this one is so brutal and shocking and loud and jarring. Oh, yes. Us and the two other people in the theater are all jumping. <laughs> well, yeah, out of jumping out. <laughs> <laughs> but then Nina wakes him when she comes back. I guess your clue is like no one reacts. Right. And that fits in with the idea of you were never really here. It's yeah, like yeah. he doesn't matter. It's all nothing. Mm-hmm. Nina comes back, wakes him up, and tells him it's a beautiful day. And seemingly for the first time in his life, he looks out and realizes that, yes, it is, and he agrees, and that's yeah. the end of the film. And she's like, do you need more coffee? Your glass looks half empty. And he's like, no, I think it's half full. <laughs> Credits. <laughs> and then a rat walks on the ledge, yeah. <laughs> directed by Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Yikes. So let's get into this interpretation stuff. A little bit beneath the surface. I know that you weren't a big fan of some of it when we were talking about it off mic. I do want to... Because I think this movie accomplishes what it wanted to accomplish with just what she gives you. I think when people go down these rabbit holes and and go too far with it, they just want a movie that they think that they understand and no one else does. And they have some smarter than anything interpretation of it. And then when you actually like step back for a minute and you're like, well, wait a minute. Okay, well, if this is true, then what is the point? Why wouldn't you just make a movie about what you're saying this is really about? Right. Because no one's going to ever get this. I think it can be a combination. I'm going to read something really quickly just because I felt like it would be easier to do it that way. One of the many interpretations. And I do think that there's some validity to some of it. I don't agree with most of it personally. I think, and there was some pushback in the places yeah. I've seen this posted. Well, I think I speak for myself and the listeners when I say that we all enjoy when you read us things. <laughs> well, they're listening to the show. Yep. So this appeared on Reddit. I don't know where it was initially posted. Somebody credited this to Frosty Chud 29 although that's not who posted this, but that's who originally came up with this, in November of 2017. So here we go. I'm going to just read this as fast as possible, maybe skip over some of it because there's a lot to it. Holy shit, there's so much to this. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to have to skip some of this. If you thought this film was about a disturbed loner avenging an innocent, you got snookered. The only way to understand you were never really here is through a Freudian lens. The theme of this film is not father-daughter incest as it appears, but rather mother-son incest. I think even saying father-daughter incest as it appears I think is a bit of a stretch stinks i'm already not in on this <laughs> joe has an incestuous relationship with his mother she says quote stay with me a little longer when he puts her to bed in the next scene she is trying to cajole him into coming into the bathroom where she is naked although she's not naked so that's not actually accurate the multiple references to psycho are not a coincidence although they are fun this, too, is the story of a man transformed into a serial murderer by his obscene mother. Although I think it was confirmed that the references to Psycho are unrelated to anything, but whatever. The story proper is nothing but a paranoid delusion, hence the title of the film and the mysterious invisibility of the main character, which I guess would be the scenes where he randomly yeah. disappears. But again, not to cut this off, I, I feel like it's supposed to be more abstract, though. It's like... 
the feeling like you were never really here. Yes. Okay, go continue. The true story, Joe as a child is dragged into an incestuous relationship by his mother, his father whose job ought to be to prevent this regressive fusion, I don't even know if that makes sense, does not have the authority to separate them. He is too violent, too weak, or too absent. We never find out. All we ever see of him is a hand holding a hammer. This scene must be understood as a metaphor. Father discovers their relationship and explodes as he rages impotently with his hammer. Mother and son exchange a complicit glance under the bed. Jesus Christ, this person. Yikes. Translation of the mother's wink. He's impotent. You're still mine. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) On Mother's Credenza is a photo of her as a young and beautiful woman and a photo of her son. Father has been eliminated from the picture. Well, Yeah, maybe because he's beating them with hammers. I don't think he was ever successfully removed from the picture. Joe rescues. He meant from the, the pictures on the. Credenza. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Like he's not yeah, a part of her equation there. Right. I mean, maybe because he's a bad guy. That's what I just said. I know. Joe rescues abused girls. This is a fantasy. No abused girl ever existed. Only an abused boy. Joe invents the story of a girl abused by her father as a displacement of the true abuse a boy by his mother. So yeah, I mean, this guy goes into that. You know, there's that bathhouse scene. Yeah. That's or true. a sauna. He he says that that's a homosexual encounter. I, I mean, that's sort of a stretch as well. Seriously, uh, he says that Joe murders his mother, commits suicide. He feels like Ramsey's employing techniques more explicitly than common in David Lynch films like Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, etc. I do think that he brings up the idea that Joe possibly murdered his own father. I do think that that is possible. Uh, I agree with that. I do think that it's also possible that there are incestuous undertones in the film between him and his mother. I don't know that that means that they ever had sex. I do think that Ramsey has trafficked in Oedipal things before. And I I believe I was reading that Jonathan Ames in some of his writing has as well. You could go down a path and make some observations as to why those two would be drawn to each other, given the situation that they were in. If that's the intent of the film, then it's a bad film because it's too obscured to make your point. There's a fine line between creating art... You haven't told your story. ...and trying to trick everybody. I do think that there are some things in there that you can read and explore. And my biggest problem is not that theory. My problem is when he says this is the only way to understand the movie. I think it's fun... To explore ideas like that in movies like You Were Never Really Here. That's just all out in the atmosphere. Right. It's sort of like Room 237, the documentary. I was going to bring that up, too. But if those people didn't believe those things were 100% true and the only way to interpret it. Yeah, yeah. I think all of those theories are fun to just throw out there and talk about. Yeah, it's definitely fun to have a conversation. But to say that this is the only way to interpret the movie is sort of dumb because then what are we even watching at a certain point in other words after the scene where he kills his mother or she dies whatever however you want to interpret right right she is killed by those men or him then what is the rest of the movie there's still like why would there be all these other scenes like who cares about this stuff with Rawls (laughs) we just have to keep calling him by his character from the wire well at least you do yeah yeah, I mean, you can point to things like nobody is shot until after he gets the gun at McCleary's house. And it's like, well, then he killed those three guys. And uh-huh. who knows how they're related to anything. Because then you start blending. I think part of his theory was like, you don't know what's real and what's not real. 
and some of it is like blended in there. So there might be some connection to those men or something. Who knows? If that is the case and that was the intent, I'm like, well, then don't waste my time with all this stuff if it's not real. I think that if you wanted to explore that idea of a mother and son incestuous relationship that's sort of triggered by trauma or triggered by this abusive father, then you should tell that story and not hide it through this other thing. Yeah. It just doesn't work as well for me. But, you know, people have different interpretations, different opinions. I think it's interesting to talk about them. I just don't think that it's smart to lock yourself in and say, this is the only way to think about this. No, especially when you actually have evidence that maybe that's not the case. Like, Yeah, the there's movie. definitely some stuff in the movie that yeah. betrays that. You hear the father's voice bullying right. him, saying, stand up straight, only, only people that slouch are girls and pussies or yeah. something like that. That doesn't really jive with the father's rage only being about some weird incestuous right. story. Well, it's kind of like with Inception when there was like a million different theories about that. But then some of the stuff that people would go into it was like all these characters are on a mission that's not actually being explained to us. It's like, well, if that was the idea, why wouldn't that just be the movie? I know. Like I said, I think that sometimes people want to feel smart and feel like they're the only ones that get something. They've put the puzzle together. They've solved it. Yeah. I do think that movies can have second meanings. Sure, and, sure. And be and, metaphors And for be things. layered and working on multiple levels at the same time. Right. But to say that there's only one thing... I do think that it's possible you could imply that their relationship was a little strange. Who knows? Yeah. If you want to take the leap all the way to like a mother-son sexual relationship, that that's fine. But, yeah. I think it but also I don't just... think that that means that the rest of it is only a fantasy. Right. I take it as it's the one tender thing that he has in his life, his relationship with his mother. Is there going to be some weirdness there based on what their history was? I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's fair. At one point, his mother does ask about Janice, and he's like, who's Janice? And then he's like, oh, you mean my girlfriend from 20 years ago? Right. So it's clear that women are not really a part of his life anymore, and so he's there with his mother, and presumably there's some strange intimate moments. And so, he, you know, it does lend itself to that idea. But sure. I, I wanted to bring it up because I came across it in my research. It's not something that I had considered. I think it's much more interesting to explore the idea of Vado's involvement in the sex trafficking ring. Well, that just seems like it's a whole abyss of darkness. Yeah, because that's stuff that you have to, like, pick up on on multiple viewings, most right. likely. You're not going to necessarily grasp all of that because it's very one line thrown here and there. It's one of those things where, like, as it clicks later, you're like, oh, shit. So thank you to Lewis for the listener request. If you have one, you can reach us on Twitter. We'll try to get to it. I think we would have to wait till next year for new ones. Yeah, We have I, one more coming up this year. I got to apologize for Lewis for projecting that he would want a sticker, too. I think he probably does. All right. Let us know. <laughs> Slide into the DMs. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Okay, so let's do recommendations real quick. I feel like it's been a while since we've had just a, a normal recommendation segment. I think so, yeah. We had some blow-ups recently when trying to do it, so, you know, we had to take a little <laughs> break. I'll go ahead and recommend a movie we saw together Oh. recently, The French Dispatch, directed by Wes Anderson. For me, it's probably his least successful live-action movie. 
Yeah. But it's still worth checking out. It's an anthology, which is not necessarily my bag. It's hard for me to get super invested in movies like that. Right. Although some people are big fans of them. It's more common in horror movies than any other type. But this is not a horror movie. I thought the first two stories were pretty good. I, I really like the first one. Yeah, same. I was running out of energy by the time it made it to the third one. The third one I had a hard time even following yeah. all the way. It's got an insane cast, some of which only are in a couple of scenes and have almost no lines, which is so weird. I know. Christoph Waltz, did he even have a line? It, it does feel like overly packed. Sir Ronan, I believe, had like one line. Christoph yeah. Waltz maybe had no lines. I don't know. It was really weird. Anytime it's Wes Anderson, of course, I'm interested. I know not everyone is still at that level with him. I am. Anytime he's making a movie, I'm interested, excited to go see it. It's strange that his movies have become so polarizing. Like there's such yeah, a lightning rod now right. every time he releases a movie. Not so there are people, people that just of color can't or people stand him mad now. that yeah. this is every movie he does is the same, like that twee right. shit. I do think he's gone way too far down that rabbit hole. I kind we've of talked about this too. before. Yeah. I like the earlier stuff where it's much more grounded in reality. Same. It's like his weirdness is a part of reality in Rushmore, Battle Rocket, Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, yes, I agree. Even Darjeeling Limited. And it's almost like they're the, the background of it. And then as you go further and further along, it just becomes more and more existing in the its foreground. own world. Yes. But I will say I enjoyed the Grand Budapest Hotel a lot on a second recent reviewing. Uh-huh. I, I hadn't watched it really since the theater, I don't think. Yeah, I think I've only watched it once since. And I, I enjoyed it a lot, and I enjoyed it a lot more than The French Dispatch. But I would check it out if you're a fan of yeah. Wes Anderson. There's a lot of interesting people in it. Some people love it. I've it seen does, some like five-star, five-out-of-five type reviews. For me, it felt like trying to do too much. It's jam-packed. There's a lot of dialogue in certain points that it's hard to even keep up with it. I still think it's cool to check out. Definitely. You can see it in theaters. I'm sure it'll be streaming somewhere soon, either to rent or whatever. You know how it goes. So that's mine. Sticking with the theme of this show from just grim content, I recently watched on HBO Max the remake series of Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage with uh, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain. I enjoyed it. It's well done. It's not uplifting, <laughs> which, you know, is, marriage rarely is tends to be up my alley. The dysfunction of a, a marriage and I guess more of the relationship between this couple over over a several year span. And each episode is sort of like a jump in time, although I think it all takes place within a couple of years, which is clear more by the end. At times it feels like maybe years are passing, but two strong performances, things hit close to home. <laughs> not really, not with like my current relationship, but relationships of the past, just how dark it can go between two people. <laughs> but super well done and would recommend giving it a shot at least if you can if you have the stomach for those things. And this is HBO Max. Yes. Yeah, they must have gotten close because they had that red carpet moment where he like kissed her armpit or something. It was a wild moment. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just in front of everyone. Well, they were in that A Most Violent Year together or whatever, too. Yes. Yeah, I just watched Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye, which was pretty good as well. But we'll keep it to two recommendations. Folks, thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Let us know if you'd like a sticker. I actually 
I have to pass along a sticker request to Matt right now. Oh, good. Lewis, thanks for the listener request. Hope we lived up to it. It's pretty interesting that we have listeners in other countries, which we've known about for a while, but it's always cool to get confirmation that it's actually real. Yeah, I think this is like giving us some cred, I would say. Yeah. Other people listening right now are like, oh, wow, that's cool. I think as a project for everyone heading into holiday season, tell your friends and family about the show, especially if they like yes. movies. We're giving you homework. Yeah, we'd like to build our audience a little bit. We're a word-of-mouth podcast. We don't really do anything other than just post them. That's yeah. pretty much it. And tweet sometimes. And word-of-mouth is slow, but it is moving. Finally, yeah. We've yeah. had some movement on it after wasting our time for <laughs> a years. Half a decade. <laughs> Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. I think that's everything. That should cover us. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Come in. Well, 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 look who's here. I haven't seen you in many a year. If I I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Baked a cake. Baked a cake. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a Hutch you do, hutch you do, hutch you do. Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band, grand band in the land. Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band and spread the welcome mat for you. Oh, I don't know where you came from, cause I don't know where you've been. But it really doesn't matter, grab a chair and fill your platter and dig, dig, dig right in. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Hired a band, goodness sake, if I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Hutch you do, hutch you do, hutch you do. Hot you do, hot you do, hot you do, hot you do. The whistles go woo!